It's the Hospital Medicine Podcast with your host, Dr. Gil Parat. Today, the topic is Brain Death in Adults, Part 1. The best place to start this topic may be with United States law. Specifically, I'm referring to the Uniform Determination of Death Act. It is a law endorsed by the 1981 U.S. President's Commission for the Study of Ethical Problems in Medicine and also endorsed by the American Bar Association and American Medical Association, among others. A fairly recent article about this law is very well reviewed in the March 1st, 2011 journal called Neurology in an article titled Brain Death and the Courts. So I'll start this podcast quoting some well-written sections of that article written by a few Mayo Clinic doctors and lawyers where they say, the main consequence of the Uniform Determination of Death Act is that a patient can be declared dead, allowing withdrawal of intensive care support and organ procurement after consent. Wills and insurance proceeds become activated. No civil or criminal liability will result from removing the body from life support after a brain death determination, except in New York and New Jersey, where physicians need to honor religious objections. The law does not elaborate on the details of the neurologic examination or the neurologic signs of cessation of brain function, but rather wholly defers to medical judgment. So the authors then studied all the court cases they could find regarding brain death. They found that all the court rulings have upheld that brain death is indeed death. So if the wishes of the family are to keep somebody on the ventilator, Physicians can still terminate care, and those doctors so far have been immune from emotional distress lawsuits. As would be expected, that also has resulted in some other interesting legal situations. For example, if brain death happens in a motor vehicle accident, the auto insurance doesn't have to pay for any care after the determination of brain death. Also, the article discusses a case where a court found a hospital negligent for not taking a brain-dead patient off a ventilator when the family requested that it be done. Why would that situation ever occur, you may be wondering? Well, in that case, the doctors wanted the family to take a little more time in hopes the family would reconsider their decision against organ donation. And therefore, to summarize the law... It expands the definition of death as being equal to cardiopulmonary death, but that definition is still deferred to physician expertise. And if you practice medicine frequently in a hospital setting, you know that these patients can have normal vital signs and be hemodynamically stable on a ventilator sometimes, and yet they are, by definition of the law, dead. They don't look like somebody dead without a heartbeat who isn't on a ventilator, and yet they are dead. And some have referred to this as physiologic decapitation. The person is dead, but the body is not dead. Surreal times we are living in indeed. It used to be that lack of respiration and circulation was a central criteria for declaring death. We used to demand cessation of all organ function, not just the loss of a single master organ. Ventilators changed that. It gets really strange when we have kept the bodies of brain-dead mothers alive long enough, in some cases months, to mature the fetus for delivery. 
Therefore, us physicians need to use guidelines like the ones published by the American Academy of Neurology to understand and meet the medical standards of brain death. Now, it should be mentioned that certain states and maybe even your hospital might have certain unique rules in declaring brain death. This is a disappointment that there is not a uniform policy that is the same in all hospitals and states. An article titled Brain Death Documentation from the September 2002 journal called Neurosurgery on page 733 explains this. Currently, most states in the United States require no special qualifications for training beyond a general medical license for individuals performing brain death examinations. California requires that two licensed physicians make the diagnosis on the basis of a clinical examination and confirmatory testing. So a bit different depending on which area of the country you live in. And again, having a more uniform policy would probably be better. I am eager to finally talk about an end-of-life care issue, as that is one of the great passions I have, because I think end-of-life care is an area where we in the United States have the biggest opportunity to make things better and more rational. I used to be a medical director for a hospice when I had more time in life, and those who have read my book know I am eager to discuss important end-of-life issues. One of my own foundation beliefs when it comes to the field of hospitalists is that you can't be a good one without diving deep into the understanding of palliative medicine. It isn't just about morphine and benzodiazepines in hospice, and that is why textbooks like Oxford's Palliative Medicine is more than 1,200 pages long. As long as we don't look at end-of-life care as a core competency in a similar manner that treating congestive heart failure is a core competency for all hospitalists, United States medicine will continue to cause unneeded suffering. Let me ask a practical question that you need to know when rounding on the wards for both the chart and when talking to families. What is the legal time of death in a brain-dead patient? Is it when you clinically declare brain death by exam or technology? Or is it when you pull off the ventilator or visualize a systole on the telemetry monitor, harvest the heart for donation? When is it? The answer is that when brain death is clinically declared, it is also the legal time of death. I don't know why, but the past few years, most of my brain death declarations seem to be in the middle of the night when I am on call. It is tempting to wait for the day team to arrive before going to make that exam on a patient you don't know after being called with a nuclear study indicating brain death. But if the family has benevolently consented to donation, like my last case, which was a suicidal hanging, you are doing the family a favor because their loved one's organs are more likely to help the recipient the faster you act. Ischemia and neurohormonal changes after brain death can affect organs the longer the organs remain in a brain-dead body. Also, data shows that a certain percentage of brain-dead patients develop cardiorespiratory arrest with each passing day. Time increases hemodynamic instability in this circumstance. I know it meant something very important to the wife of my last case of brain death, 
that her husband's organs were going to do some genuine good. We talked about it, and she unconditionally expressed that to me. I think if cardiorespiratory arrest happened before the organs were donated, not only would lives be lost for the waiting recipients of those organs, but it would have compounded the catastrophe the wife was already living through. With that understanding, I will now move into some other interesting territories and specifics. An article that makes some great practical, medical, and ethical points about how we as healthcare providers respond to brain death comes from the publication called Journal of Nursing Administration Healthcare Law, Ethics, and Regulation. There is an article in April 2006 titled Clinical Response to Brain Death, a Policy Proposal. I would like to discuss this noteworthy article for a few minutes. The paper argues that all institutions should have the same guidelines in withdrawing the ventilator on a brain-dead person, which unfortunately isn't the case currently because the lack of universal policy causes confusion for both families and doctors. The authors argue that if the organs are not going to be donated, we should withdraw the ventilator immediately, speaking carefully and compassionately to family that the person has already died, and not burden the family with the decision of when to turn off the ventilator. Do not give an impression that turning off the ventilator is when the person has died. They already died. They also say that at most, the attending physician should give a two-hour window for ventilator removal and that we shouldn't make this a situation of waiting for family to arrive from out of state and the many other scenarios most of us have encountered when some families demand more time. The authors argue that brain death is not a situation of compassionate extubation or terminal weaning like we often use in end-of-life situations where the suffering doesn't make sense and the decision against aggressive care is indeed made by family or the patient and where we provide comfort medicines to a living person as we remove artificial support. Now, I would like to quote the authors regarding just a few of the salient points they make. They say this, The mission of hospitals is not to maintain the dead. Hospitals provide facilities where the living can receive necessary and effective medical care. A delay in withdrawing support misuses resources. Nurses, physicians, ancillary providers, and equipment become invested in monitoring the state of bodies, not living beings. So, some interesting points, but another point I think worth making at this time It's a legal consideration, and it comes from the guidelines on brain death, which is federal and state law requires physicians to contact an organ procurement organization following determination of brain death. Time for some trivia and facts that I think we should know. What is the most common cause of brain death in adults? Subarachnoid hemorrhage. The source for that is the journal that has a very special place in my heart called Transplantation from a June 15, 2011 article, and I'm sure you are all aware that my first medical publication when I was just a college senior was actually in the Journal of Transplantation back in 1995. But back to the more important facts. 
road accidents resulting in traumatic brain injury is the second most common cause of brain death. And perhaps a more important piece of trivia is that the only possible available way to get a donor heart currently is from brain dead donors. It's not like a kidney or part of a liver or bone marrow that can be donated from a compassionate living donor. And that is why a heart is such a precious and rare organ when it becomes available as the ultimate gift to a person dying from heart disease. Another fact that is important to discuss with families is that the donor's body will not be disfigured during the donation procedure and that donation does not prohibit a funeral or preclude viewing of the body. We need to step back and acknowledge the question, why is it so valuable to diagnose brain death? It provides an irrevocable finality for the family and the medical team. And, of course, it provides a brief window of opportunity for organ donation. The reality is, once humanity can farm organs from scratch without using donors, the debates that sometimes surround brain death may become less emotional. And there is a lot of emotion on many sides of the aisle when talking about brain death. The most thought-provoking medical article I have read in recent months comes from the 2003 Critical Care Medicine Journal in an article titled, Role of Brain Death and the Dead Donor Rule in the Ethics of Organ Transplantation. While I don't think I will get too into their proposal that we should not have to wait for brain death and the dead donor rule to harvest organs, particularly if a patient is imminently dying, and they explain that there can be patients with cervical quadriplegia desiring ventilator withdrawal who want to give their organs, but they can't because by the time death is declared, the person's organs are also dead, which is why we call it death. Now, more important at this point in human history, and particularly important before we dive into the clinical criteria of brain death, is the following quote from this intriguing article. And they say, To begin with, even firm supporters of the concept of whole brain death now acknowledge that many patients currently diagnosed as brain dead do not, in fact, as required by the Uniform Determination of Death Act, have irreversible cessation of all functions of the entire brain. It is widely recognized, for example, that many of these patients retain function of the posterior pituitary and other brain functions. Although acknowledging that the concept of whole brain death is only an approximation, supporters have insisted that these residual functions can be ignored because they are not significant. It is hard to understand why we place great emphasis on the pupillary light and corneal reflexes, which are neurologic functions of minimal physiologic significance, and ignore the neurologic regulation of salt and water homeostasis, neurologic functions of critical physiologic significance. So some interesting points... And in my next podcast, when I start talking about 
ancillary testing. And the future of ancillary testing that I won't talk about is that we will probably be able to pick up, you know, a few cells here and there that are working in the brain or small, tiny areas of the brain that might be having blood flow. And are we going to throw out the entire concept of brain death when we have better technology and testing? And I hope the answer is no. But these are the kind of debates and things that we're going to have to keep in mind going forward. Now, I will end this podcast saying, when diagnosing brain death, you need to have the following criteria met. The first thing is we need to exclude reversible causes like a drug overdose or a drug that you gave them, like a paralytic, and other things like hypothermia. The second thing we need is that there should be an absence of all cerebral functions. And the third thing we need is there also shouldn't be any brainstem functions, including spontaneous respirations. So I will stop here and start my next podcast on brain death, taking these three criteria into account and how we can use the exam, apnea testing, and also some discussion about ancillary testing to make the diagnosis of brain death. You've been listening to the Hospital Medicine Podcast with your host, Dr. Gil Parrott.